0: out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 120 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf, and I will be joined, as always, by my co-host and partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson. And no, I'm not in London anymore, folks. Was there for about three and a half years. Wanted to continue my European vacation, if you will, so we moved over to the Netherlands for a while. Thought we'd be there for a few years, but didn't work out that way, and now I'm trying to transition myself back to the United States of America, so maybe that will uh, help me get some more listeners over here. Maybe I'll be able to get some more, some more shows in America. We'll see. I'm going to miss my friends in the UK. I'm going to miss the lifestyle in Europe, especially the didn't have a car part of my lifestyle. Suddenly that changes when you get to the Midwest of America. There's no choice. You have to have a ride, uh, and so we're working on sorting all that out for me now as we speak. But hopefully our friends in the UK will still continue to listen because all of our favorite rock bands are still British. We are still Anglophiles for the most part uh, in all that we do. Of course, last week's show, number 119 on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon as it turns 50, was pretty darn successful. It was a big show for us and we appreciate you tuning in. And to all the other Pink Floyd related shows, because we did one on Momentary Lapse of Reason. We did one on Delicate Sound of Thunder. We did a couple Nick Mason reviews, and we had Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp on episode number 96. So hopefully you tuned into all those, and we appreciate everybody who downloaded it and gave us good reviews. And this week, it's another English artist, one who was very popular in the UK and really all over the world, but less so here in America, and that's David Bowie. David Bowie, of course, shot to stardom in the late 60s, early 70s, really hit it big once you do Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Glam rock, gender bending, very image conscious, one of the most photographed rockers of all time, and we're actually going to review an album that maybe his hardcore fans don't love, and that's Let's Dance from 1983, because it is turning 40, if you can believe that, in April of 2023. And it's where we came in in the Bowie saga. Look, we were born uh, in the early 70s, in 1983, we were 10, and we were children of the MTV generation. And seeing China Girl and Let's Dance and Modern Love on MTV really introduced us to David Bowie. Not the gender-bending rock god of the 70s that put him on the map, but more the grown-up, short hair, suit-wearing gentleman that he pulled off in the 1980s. And it was his biggest-selling record of all time, with his biggest-selling single, Let's Dance. And so we're gonna dive into it because we love producer Nile Rogers and his influence is all over the album. Uh, and we remember watching the videos and hearing the music as kids. So that's what we're gonna get into here on show number 120. Little bit of business first. Yes, we are proud members of Pantheon Podcast, a network of about a hundred great music-related shows. And you can go to pantheonpodcast.com to learn more. Pantheon's actually sponsoring a Rock and Pod Expo in Nashville this coming weekend, March 17th through the 19th. It's going to have lots of rockers there, lots of podcasters. There's a track to learn more about how to make your podcast better. I guess I probably ought to attend some of those. But you can also meet some of the Pantheon team. And I know my buddy Jay from the Hook Rocks is going to be there, and I have been on his show as I won his March Madness bracket last year. But we always like to give shoutouts to our other Pantheon friends who we've had on the show, like Christy Alexander-Hallberg of Rock Is Lit, like Martin Popoff of History in Five Songs, like our good friend Paul Stevenson of This Day Rocks and the Vintage Rock Pod, and of course to the Kiss Kings, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loudcast who helped us get onto Pantheon. And the CEO, Christian Swain of Rock and Roll Archaeology. He'll be there in Nashville, and I look forward to seeing him. But of course, we got to give a shout out to our amazing sponsors, RareVinyl.com. I already mentioned earlier here that, yeah, they've got an amazing selection of stuff. Bowie stuff is always coming in and out of there. So go to rarevinyl.com, use the code podcast. They've got an amazing team there in the UK. They ship all over the world. You can save 10% just by using our code podcast. So whether you're looking for a rare David Bowie or an original or an old LP, maybe a poster, who knows? Go to rarevinyl.com or eil.com, use that code podcast and save your 10%. But back to Bowie, yeah, because of his gender-bending stuff, I think that probably turned off a lot of the working-class people or some of the folks in the flyover states here in the U.S. But you know, to those who like to experiment, those who are avant-garde, those in the LGBTQ community, he was an icon, a legend. Now, this album, Let's Dance, kind of added to that legend in a way because it made him a huge pop star and a superstar in the 80s. To the hardcore fans, though, it may have been like, ah, he's sold out. It's not the same anymore. He's not just singing to me. He's singing to Housewives. He's singing to kids. He's on MTV. He's not in the small theater with the makeup on, singing songs that only I relate to. And I understand that. And and David, I think, afterwards, I don't know if regret would be the right word, but it was a double-edged sword. It's like, it's great to sell all these albums. great to get recognition. It's great to make all that money. But that's not really who I am, and that's not really the music I would really choose to do. So uh, eventually I think he kind of distanced himself a little bit from the album. But at any rate, it's still his biggest. It's still the one that introduced him to two 10-year-olds in 1983, me and Action Jackson. So we're going to go track by track here on David Bowie's Let's Dance right here on The Wolf. All right. So 1983 was obviously big for us in that we're 10 years old and MTV has been around for a year and a half, two years now. Suddenly, I mean, it was always kind of a phenomenon when it came out. Oh yeah. Hey MTV. Yeah, sure. Great. Sounds good. But at this point it had real traction and you, someone our age, this was how we were getting our music in 1983, in the summer of 83, certainly was MTV. And as we discussed before, you know, there's legacy artists like Peter Gabriel. Well, we don't know Peter Gabriel was in a band called Genesis. We didn't know he had several albums out. All we knew is there's this Shock the Monkey song and there's a weirdo named Peter Gabriel singing it. And it was kind of the same for David Bowie. We don't know that he's this gender-bending legend that had created this avant-garde music and really iconic image who's huge in the UK. We just know, okay, well, there's this guy, David Bowie, with some, like, bleach-blonde hair... With a song called "Let's Dance" or an album called "Let's Dance" and a couple of cool singles off of it, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, and even looking at him in the video, because I went back and, and looked at what I could on YouTube, you would never have guessed that he was the Ziggy Stardust or any of the rest of that. And I know that uh, in reading the the comments on this record, they called this thing a sellout, and you know he was trying to play to to the, the Phil Collins quote unquote crowd crowd. Yeah. yeah, but it it doesn't sound like that to me. Like it was very popular, but it doesn't sound like anything else that came out at that time. Yeah, and I I get
0: it. He he was he wasn't ever really going, it would seem, for huge commercial success, right? And this is his 15th album, all right? And and his best-selling album like ever. Certainly the best-selling album in the United States. Uh, uh-huh. but like if you go back and look at You know, obviously, we've we've talked since the ugly American werewolf in London, we talk about how some artists make it huge in one side of the pond, but they don't quite break on the other. And in England, in the UK, David Bowie's like the ninth biggest selling artist of all time, whereas in America, he doesn't really scratch the surface. I mean, he has gold records. He has a couple Mm -hmm. platinum records. And this one was huge for him with his platinum singles and stuff like that. But he never was trying to be all things to all people. He was always being a little niche and and pushing boundaries of art and style and image and music. Like Lou Reed in the early to mid-70s, like his buddy Iggy Pop, little gender-bending thing. And so I'm like, all right, well, then obviously that'll play well in New York, that'll play well in LA, but there's the big bit in the middle. We're like, oh, what's he wearing? What's he looking like that for? But I'm like, you know... Most of England is like, I mean, get away from London, and most of England is like that too. So his success <laughs> is, uh, especially in the 70s, so his success is interesting to me in the UK.
2: I, yeah, I don't know. I think that in, in the United Kingdom, they may be a little a little more open to that privately. You know, you may mm-hmm. put a suit on during the day, go to your you know banking job or whatever. But yeah, no, you like to, I, I think that you like to get a little freer perhaps in your in your spare time or you look at somebody like that and you're like man i wish i i wish i was brave enough to do that mm-hmm. instead of wearing my blue or gray suit every day yeah maybe so maybe so and and you know coming
0: out of world war II and then through the 60s all of a sudden everything's in technicolor and this is a guy who is kind of taking advantage of that it's like you're not just buttoned up you know keep calm and carry on keep calm you know like her yeah. lip old boy You know, kind of thing. You can look however you want to look. You can change that. It doesn't just have to be the same old norm. And he gets a lot of credit for that, as he should. He also basically came out more than 50 years ago and said, I'm gay. Now, hes I would say he was bisexual because he had a a long relationship with one of the most beautiful women in the world, Iman. But, you know, in the early 70s, there was no LGBTQ+. There was no. just, you know, big swipe with a brush, you're gay, you know, it's like, <laughs> they didn't really get the other things. It's just like, you're not just like the normal, what the church and the government and your parents tell you, you must be. So I mean I think he deserves a lot of a lot of credit for that but I mean, I guess that probably made him a hero and an icon in some mm-hmm. parts of society and not a pariah but kind of like an arm's length weirdo to to other people <laughs> I guess you know
2: well you know you were saying about how you know he was he was much bigger in europe slash England than he was in the United States and I was thinking to myself you know I mean I remember let's dance and then from there working it backwards to his other catalog but I mean did he did he really sell that many records? Mm-hmm. Throughout his lifetime Bowie sold roughly 140 million records mm-hmm. worldwide. That's no joke. This right. dude was huge. huge. Way way bigger than he got credit for in the United States.
0: Well, exactly. You know, that that's the way I see it. But, you know, I again, I'm a 10-year-old kid in America. Uh-huh. I don't know anything about all that stuff, you know. All I know is there's this guy on MTV And he's got some kind of cool videos, and the songs are obviously hits, especially the the first three. Uh It's kind of interesting that there's really only one song on the record, because there's only eight songs on the record, and he released four singles. And Uh three of the four singles, the B-side was a song off the record. So basically every single song except for one was released as a single on this. So that's kind of a big deal. If you ask me, I mean, it's, it means everybody at some point had exposure to mostly all of this record in one fashion or another. And it did, it
2: did well. And, and I think it was, this was kind of a very strange time for Bowie in his life. I didn't realize that he, when Lennon died in 1980, like it really mm-hmm. affected him. Like he, he just disappeared. Like he canceled his, his tour the uh what tour was it? The Scary Monsters tour. Right. And just basically went back to his house in Switzerland, which doesn't sound like it's bad at all. And basically just kind of became a recluse for like he was working in his home, mm-hmm. but he wasn't really doing anything record wise. And then he wanted I guess he wanted to come back and decided to to hire, to hire Niall Rogers, who puts his pants on one leg at a time and spends the rest of the day making diamond selling records. Yeah.
0: He's Nile Rogers is the Man, you know, yeah. and I, I think he, he's like, all right, well, I got to get Nile Rodgers in here. Yeah, no, you're right. It, but John Lennon's murder, and of course, he did fame with John in, in the 70s, and, and they were buddies. Oh. I, I think it really did affect him, it really affected him in a in a big way. The Scary Monsters and Super Creeps album, which came out in 1980, included Ashes to Ashes and mm. Fashion, which were fairly big hits. For him, as it always did, it kind of went into the top 10, went to number one in the U.K., went into the top 10, mostly all around the world, number 12 in the U.S., but it didn't sell that well. You know, I think it went platinum in Australia, platinum in Canada, platinum in the U.K., but no designation in the U.S., and, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't sell off the charts. Then that happened, right? Then John Lennon's murdered and he's like okay i'm i'm going to make some changes here and so he he did some soundtrack work he, he played the elephant man i think on stage for a while mm-hmm. and tried his hand at acting of course i guess the first time i really remember seeing him acting was in labyrinth with a very young and beautiful jennifer connelly back in the day
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is yeah, not too was...
0: long after this it's maybe Correct. 3 years after yeah, yeah. Uh, so so you know so he it's like he, he still continued to have some radio hits on most every album. He also released some greatest hits albums that did fine in the UK, but didn't do anything in the US. He worked on the Cat People soundtrack with Giorgio Moroder, and we'll Mm -hmm. get to a song off that here later. But then, yeah, he decided, all right, I'm going to go ahead and try something. He lines up Nile Rodgers, who is a genius producer, songwriter, heck of a guitar player as well. But this is the first album Bowie does not play instruments on. He's just... A singer, So it's almost Mm. like he's just a crooner and it's like almost like Motown, like just bring the singer in and we've got all the musicians ready to kind of back them up. It's also the first time he doesn't have anybody, any musicians on the album that he didn't use, at least one on the previous album. So it's a completely clean slate. It's been a few years and he's going in a totally new direction
2: now. Which, which makes sense if you're going to do that because you don't want you, – you want a new sound. You don't want to go down the same road. And, you know, at some point in time, you just want to tell people what to do. Like, this is this is what's happening. It's not really a band. You know, mm-hmm. you've got Bowie who's writing all the music. You've got Niall who is the producer. He also plays rhythm guitar. And I think he pretty much served as, like, the musical director. Like, he told everybody what to do. Absolutely. I think Bowie went and banged out the vocals in, like, two days which is amazing. Is that and, right? He just said that that's what I read. Okay. And the whole thing went really quick and he just said, "Yeah, I'm the singer on this one. Everybody else can play the music and I'll I'll come in and sing and that's it." Well, he's living in, in Montrose,
0: Switzerland and you know, he's buddies with Freddie Mercury. He also lives uh, around those parts. Has mm-hmm. a statue to him there if I'm not mistaken. And so he did do the Under Pressure song with Queen and I think it was 82 right before this. So, all right, so now he's going for a little bit of commerciality, a little more R&B, you know, maybe put a little bit of uh, funk in there, if you will, and obviously Niall can help with that, but maybe a little less experimental than he was in his 70s days, mm-hmm. and I think that's where you start to get the critics. I mean, look, anytime a band or an artist, you know, and sells gold or platinum, like there's a contingent of hardcore fans who love them. They don't want them to necessarily break out. It's like they think other people should know who he is, but they don't really want them to because then they lose this cool thing that they know about and nobody else does, right? But they also don't want them to change, even though Bowie's constantly doing different things and reinventing himself. Certainly his image is different all the time, but because it became popular, hit the radio, it went double platinum in the U.S., I think a lot of the hardcore fans, not unlike... Metallica fans with the Black Album or R.E.M. fans with maybe Green or something like that. It's like, oh, we liked it when they were this small thing that only we loved. Yeah. I hate that everyone else loves it.
2: And you sold out, you know, yeah. th- this is it. You're, you're done.
0: Look at you on MTV. You don't look like uh, a girl anymore. You look like a dude. What's that about? I'm like, well, he is a dude. I don't know what you want (laughs) from him, you know. And and he's looking. I mean, look, look at the cover, right? He's got like boxing gloves on, with his shirt off, you know, ready to to be tough, ready to do something different.
2: You know, I wonder if that. I wonder if that is one of the things that kind of hampered him in the United States is the fact that he did gender bend and and mess around everything. But the other thing was, we've talked about this before. In the United States, you can only be one thing. And right. he was a he was a very successful musician, a very good looking dude, like strikingly good looking. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to be an actor. So it's, you know, again, you can't be more than one thing. So forget it. We're only gonna we're only gonna accept you as one thing.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it looks like he has two different colored eyes is off-putting to That's some messed people. Up. You know, he does it. It's just one has a much bigger, you know, pupil or whatever. It's they're actually the same color. But you know, that that freaks some people out, you know. I, I don't know. As cool as and important as Image is to rock and roll, and obviously mm. the bands that we love, like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and you know whoever else you want to name, Image has obviously been a big part of their career. Sometimes people get a little too wrapped up in that. I feel like. <laughs> and honestly, I think in the U.S., to the majority of the population, that's to Bowie's detriment. Because it's like he's just Image, mm-hmm. and he's just avant-garde for avant-garde's sake. He's not making he's not, and he's not making rock and roll he's not making you know power chord hard rock he's doing odd artsy things and again that will always apply, uh, uh, appeal to a niche but will never make you super mainstream until you get Niall to take your vision and make it pretty cool and funky
2: mm-hmm. and I guess uh, Niall thought he was gonna make scary monsters too mm-hmm. and then he's like he's just said no we're going completely hard right turn on this. And yeah, he jumped on it and put this stuff together.
0: And I like it. It's, it's got elements of new wave, which was kind of what was going on at the time. You know, it, it fit in on MTV next to Duran Duran and, and next to the stuff that, that was popular at that point. But there was a sophistication to it that obviously mm. you gain when you've been doing this for 15 or 20 years or however long he'd been doing it at that point.
2: And part of it is to the image. I went back and and watched the videos, and in in the ones in uh, Modern Love, China Girl, and Let's Dance, he's all wearing a suit. Mm -hmm. Like he's not – I mean he looks like a gentleman and not a a, a typical rock star, like no ripped jeans, no leather jacket. He just looks like he's his own – Person.
0: And you have to admit, someone like a Mick Jagger dressed pretty similarly, you know, around the same time. Like, and, and they're of that same generation and class mm. of rock star right yeah. there. You know, yeah. I mean, Mick may have sold more records and had bigger tours, but as far as the way uh, they are treated in the press and, and uh, yeah. being in the pantheon, especially in the UK now, they're they're kind of on that same level there. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's kind of let's start to go through this a little bit track by track. I, I'll admit to you that as we were talking about, this is the first time I'd ever seen Bowie had any clue who he was. I only really bought one. I only have one. I guess I have a tin machine album, but I, I only ever bought one David Bowie record, and it was in 1990-91, I think it was part of like Columbia Records, like, you know, buy eight and then you get you get eight for a penny, and then you gotta buy four <laughs> or five more but, you know, in, at that time, as we talked about, a lot of great box sets were coming out, like mm-hmm. the Led Zeppelin box set Eric like Clappin. Clapton's, yeah, like yeah. Clapton's Crossroads, stuff like that, they had like a three-disc Bowie set, and of course, a lot of people are like, oh, you can finally get all this Bowie all together, and I'm like, well, I don't know if I want a three-disc set, but they had Bowie, like a, a one discer of that Uh, That basically Mm -hmm. just had all of his radio hits. And so, you know, as a, I I wasn't a huge Bowie fan, but I'm like, hey, you know, if I'm going to be a record collector, which is what I was and am and probably always will be here, you know, I'm like, I better get that. And so I did. And, you know, I, I got to listen, I got to know his, it's not really his complete catalog, but it's his big hits Right, Uh, big radio hits, and so that gave me a better appreciation. It's it's called Changes, Bowie. Okay, and you know I had it at school. We didn't listen to it much because well, we just didn't. But you know it's it's got all the all the big hits on it through the years, including Let's Dance, China Girl, and Modern Love from this album. Mm. Now, after the success of this album, we'll talk about this a little bit after. I think he, again, it was a pivot point where he's like, "Ugh, what did I do?" Yeah, now I really am all things to all people, which I never mm-hmm. really want to do. The tour was an enormous success, uh, and uh, and we can talk about that as well because I remember seeing some of the videos from it. But after that, for years, really until he did Tin Machine, he didn't. A he didn't do much, and B it was not well received.
2: Yeah, I think that he kind of, yeah, he kind of shot himself in the foot there because he he purposely made this record. He wanted to have hits. It became it kind of got out from under him, is what it seems. It it turned into something that he didn't like, and mm-hmm. then he was kind of stuck for a little while. Like, wait a minute, you said you wanted to do this. Now you're the records you're putting out really are underperforming. He's not super great, and I remember when he put out Tin Machine and listening to that and thinking, now this is. Really weird stuff, but again, it's it's Bowie not standing still,
0: right? Yeah, and it it was hard rock, uh, you know, with the Sales brother, with Soupy Sales kids, if you can <laughs> it was believe weird. that. Yeah, uh, Hunt and Tony, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah. and Reeves gabrell's on the guitar, who
3: mm-hmm. you know
0: that uh, Eddie Van Halen used to like to use a drill to sure. on his guitar. Yeah, mm-hmm. Reeves used to like to play with a vibrator. Well, you know, which is another way to get some interesting <laughs> noises. <laughs> out of it. I remember him writing for Guitar World Magazine or something like that, like, talking about that. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But again, give him credit for reinventing himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's that's hard rock. And and when he did it was kind of when hard rock and then grunge was the thing. So he's kind of reinventing himself in a positive way there, or at least in a way that kind of translates, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I think I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of the grunge people, including Trent Reznor, really go back to Bowie as somebody who they drew a lot of inspiration from just being an artist and making music for music's sake. And I think that at that point in time, he kind of came back again for the people that we listened to because they pointed to him as somebody who they not so much wanted to emulate, but like take inspiration from, right. I don't think, I don't think you can ever out Bowie David Bowie. No,
0: no, but I mean, guys we've had on our show like uh, Gary Kemp, you know, you're talking about how what a huge influence Bowie was on him and and then making Spando and then Mm -hmm. doing everything that he's done since. And especially to UK artists. Yeah, I I think he's up there in the Pantheon, whereas here he's just another guy, or he's kind of part of a niche piece.
2: (laughs) Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London
1: podcast.
2: Anyway, let's let's get into the songs because sure. the record is pretty darn good. It's I mean, it's it's nice and tight. It's like 40 minutes long. Mm-hmm. They definitely went ahead and front-loaded this thing.
0: Yeah, well, no doubt. It, it starts off with Modern Love. Very catchy. Very catchy mm-hmm. tune. And when he's kind of speaking at the beginning, I don't want to go out. I want to stay in. Get things done. I, I think that was kind of a reaction to what was going on in his life. After John died, he's like, well, tch. If someone could kill John Lennon, they could do the same thing to me. There's plenty of weirdos who love me, so I'm, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not stepping out when I don't have to. But you know, the, the chorus is—it's so catchy. I've always loved this song, and it makes, you know, it's, it's a great like movie song to put into a soundtrack or put into a certain part of a movie. I, I just think it's really good.
2: It to me, that listening to the beginning of this, this could have gone horribly wrong because the guitar intro—that's—that sounds very '80s the drum comes in that's pretty cool but then he goes into it sounds totally it, it, he he makes it into a song where it's you can play it on the radio it doesn't sound like anything else and it's really cool yeah especially the spoken part mm-hmm. i know when to i know when to stay in
3: yes
2: get things done yeah you do baby that's uh that's sage advice people
3: get things done
0: You know, and, and the choruses and the, the, I mean, so catchy. I mean, the, the She-Wolf doesn't really know anything about B- David Bowie. When I put this
2: on, she's like,
1: oh, I love this song.
2: Yeah, and, yeah. and just, there's a groove to it. The, the saxophone is awesome. And it's, you know, it's the it's the call and response, you know, modern love. And then, oh, modern love. I know this. I can sing it back to you.
0: Yeah. Exactly. You know, it, it and it, it talks about real life that people can relate to. It's not talking about being a star man. It's it's not that. You know, it's something about real life. You know, it's relatable. You're right. The sax is good. In the video, which is basically a performance video from the tour, Uh uh-huh serious moonlight tour which is a line from it was his most successful tour ever i mean selling out arenas and stuff like that Uh, but the video is kind of funny in that he's got a suit on he's got his bleach blonde hair he's doing his Mm. dances you can see his backup singers doing god and man behind him yeah what i thought was interesting about the video is someone hands him some flowers like from the front row, <laughs> Just, he goes down and, gets it, and then he goes and gives it to somebody else. Basically, yeah. you know. What's interesting to me also is that this song, because eventually, I, the I mean, they, they did release like a VHS and uh, a laserdisc, and then eventually a DVD from it. But and it was the last song. I mean, it's the way he wrapped up concert each and every night. But it wasn't originally on the CD that they released of the live bit of it which didn't huh. come till a long time later here now I got here we go it, it didn't come out till 2018 so this was recorded in 83 obviously you know and then it's it's like young americans fame and credits it didn't have modern love on the album but if you get the dvd or or the video back in the day it would have been vhs for us it is on there it's how you wrap the show and it's huh. the the video that we'd seen on mtv when we were kids So I always thought that was kind of weird. But hey, you know, Bowie's kind of weird. And (laughs) it was released
2: posthumously. So he didn't really have any say over what they would do or wouldn't do. So Uh, I wonder if he had a problem with that then. That's why it was never out. And then once he's gone, then whoever takes over the the estate says, nope, slap it on there. Maybe, maybe so. But,
0: you know, it was released as the third single in uh, September of 83. You know, got up to six On the U.S. mainstream rock, number 14 on Billboard Hot 100, number two in the U.K., top 10 in my former home of the Netherlands, and sold, you know, over 200000 in Britain alone. It was backed with, it's the one single that wasn't backed with another song off the album. It was backed with live version of Modern Love from the tour. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the single-edit is about 50 seconds or so shorter than the album edit. So I, I listen to both. Look, I, I always like, I, unless I don't like the song, <laughs> I always like the longer version better. Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. Which is the album version. But great way to start the album. Very pop, kind of new wave, fits with the times, and yeah, we're off and running here.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, to the next song, song number two china girl
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: in today's woke culture i don't know if you could even have a song called china girl
2: and especially with that intro riff oh boy oh boy
0: i wanted it to sound very asian like yeah Uh it's stereotypically asian (laughs) I'll, i'll give you that pal no doubt about it and you know once again of course the single edit is maybe maybe a minute and a half, or, or certainly more than a minute shorter than than the album B side is "Shake It," which we'll get to. It's it's the last song on the record. But of course, when I first understood this song, it was the video directed by David Mallett, uh, mm-hmm. who's done so many of the videos in, in that era that we loved. You know, working with Duran Duran, so many people in in Australia. They did that. This is the second single. I don't know. I thought it was a cool video at the time, and I didn't encounter many asians in my life in my day-to-day life (laughs) at that time so i guess it was i don't know it was like it was introducing me to their culture but it was also kind of like because the woman wasn't she was like sexy mysterious but she's also kind of subservient i don't know it was it was to a 10 year old it was kind of odd
2: to me at the time and and you kind of wonder too like you're talking about china girl and there's the woman is asian there are Chinese, like at one point in time, she looks like she's wearing traditional Chinese garb. For all I know, but the, it was shot in Sydney. So you're like, wait, is that the Sydney Opera House? Like, what are we doing
0: here? Yeah, and you know, it's something that he and Iggy Pop had already written together. It had uh, it was a collaboration they did on Iggy's solo album, The Idiot, from I think it was 1977. So now they kind of rework it
2: a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, let David sing it, let Nile
0: put his bit on
2: there. I can I tell you, I was a little, I went back and listened to the Iggy Pop version and I was a little bit disappointed. It, it to me, it sounds kind of like a demo of this song. It's mm-hmm. not really, like the, like the the riff isn't in there, but I would have thought Iggy would have done something really weird with this, but the the vocal delivery is kind of the same. So I, I don't know. I mean, I can only imagine they were living together when they wrote this. The amount of substances that must have mm. been in that place was Probably epic. I'm thinking about the end of Scarface.
0: Well, yeah, and, and Niall brought that up. When Niall heard the heard the title, he's like, well, this is a drug song, right? Because aU and Iggy did it together, and, and we know Iggy was into all sorts of stuff. And on the street, China means heroin and right. girl apparently means cocaine so you're talking about speedball you're talking about having fun all the time and when he explained that to Bowie Bowie's like oh yeah cool great that's that makes it even better somehow you know <laughs> shot in Australia and then at the end it kind of had that here to eternity vibe with them like in the surf or whatever okay but it did win the MTV Video Award for Best Male Video that year which I I wouldn't say it was surprising necessarily and I you know that's an interesting category male video. I assume they had a female video. I assume they had a group duo mm. or band video. I'm not sure, but it was a big hit. It was number two in the UK, number three, mainstream rock, number 10 on Billboard, number two in my old homeland of the Netherlands. Did very well all around the world. You can hear Niall's guitar on it. You can, hold, you can hear Stevie Ray Vaughan on there too. I guess we haven't talked too much. Stevie Ray Vaughan, who of course we love, he's an amazing, he was an amazing blues guitar player. He was unsigned at the time, I guess he played the Montreux Jazz Festival and Bowie saw him and said, "Okay, I'm going to get him on here." So he's on 6 of the 8 tracks on here. Sometimes he stands out, sometimes not so much. You can hear him on this one.
2: Yeah. And I think that it, I would like to go back and talk to the 10-year-old me about this because I always felt like there was something there was something I couldn't put my finger on that was cool on these songs. And I think it was Stevie Ray Vaughan. And it's interesting, yeah, Bowie saw him and was apparently just blown away and said, we got to use this guy. And Nile Rodgers was like, eh, "Yeah, I mean, he kind of sounds like Albert King. Like, wait, what do you want? And Bowie said, no, 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 he, he's, he's got this. He can do this. And he really doesn't play Stevie Ray Vaughan, in quotes, guitar on this. But right. it's it's, just, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit funky. And it, it elevates these songs to a different Level for me. Yeah, you can pick out his tone, and it was years, years later when I was listening to "Let's
0: Dance," and I and I I heard his guitar part in there, and I'm like, well, God, if that doesn't sound like uh-huh. Stevie Ray Vaughan, and then I went and looked it up. Like, sure enough, wow, he had Stevie Ray Vaughan before we had any clue who he was, you know. So uh-huh. David was like that; he could pick out talent. Now, Carmen Rojas was on bass for most all of this, and Omar Hakim was on drums, and, and Omar's. Awesome. I mean, he's so good and he's, he's worked with Niall on other things. Niall was reluctant to use Bernard Edwards mm-hmm. and Tony Thompson, the greatest or one of the greatest rhythm sections of all time because of their drug use. I guess they did because I mean, you're right. Maybe Bowie laid his, laid his vocals down two days. The whole album only took 17 days. I mean, you know, uh-huh. it was like something a, a new band would do like in the early 70s. Like it took him four days to make the first Black Sabbath album. Yeah, there you go. But he was reluctant to use them. They did come in and do some stuff, not on this song, but but we can get to that. But I, I think it's a good one.
2: Yeah, no, this is a definitely good song. And and Vaughn was supposed to be on tour with Bowie and uh he wanted Double Trouble to open for them, but he was told no. And why? Because of drug use. Because
0: of drugs, yeah. And yeah. then Stevie said, Well, I didn't like him, you know, playing my cause in the Let's Dance video. There's a solo. It's mm-hmm. obviously Stevie Ray Vaughn's tone, if you know what to mm-hmm. listen to. But in the video, David's playing it on the guitar, like basically miming his parts to say, like, oh, I didn't like that. That's why I wasn't on tour. No, SIP. <laughs> you were not up to stuff. <laughs> and he told you so, and he kicked you off, which is too bad because it was a huge tour, and that would have mm-hmm. really... Been a big deal for Stevie Ray Vaughan, but things happen for a reason. It, it all kind of tended to work out for everybody on that. But you know, big big hit for him is it politically correct? Would it fly today? Maybe not. I wonder because this turns forty in April. If anybody comes out, you know, the backlash. Oh, oh, well, David's appropriating and using stereotypes yeah. because the, just because you're dead and that you were an advocate for like LGBTQ. That doesn't mean you're free from ridicule, you know.
2: And if we're going to go down that road, if there is somebody who is legitimately upset about this, I'd like to know why. I mean, what is it about this that would make you so upset? I don't know. But I do like the I like the music on this. The bass line is just pumping. Mm-hmm. And when it goes into CB solo, you know you've got something a little bit different here.
0: Absolutely. Then the third track is the title track, Let's Dance. Huge, huge, huge hit for him. Biggest single he ever had,
2: mm-hmm. by
0: far, not even close. And you can you can hear Stevie Ray on the solo really, really well. The video to me is more memorable than the China Girl video because it's basically a couple of Aboriginal kids, I would call them, maybe teenagers or early 20s, you know, trying to make their way through society in Australia. And you see David singing. Let's dance in what looks like a little, you know, hot iron shack out Mm. in the middle of the Outback out there. So it's like, this is kind of legit Australian video. But some of that Aboriginal stuff went over my head as a young kid. Now it's, it's pretty striking and it's pretty obvious. I didn't really know much about australia or the native folks from there Mm. i could tell that they were dark-skinned different from the white people who were walking around in suits or driving the cars of the streets and obviously it's kind of like a precursor to what midnight oil taught me once i was a teenager then like oh okay the aboriginal plight in australia and the way they were treated all right that's something i need to be aware of i guess he was kind of putting that in there before i really understood what was going
2: on. Yeah, and it's interesting too you're talking about the the little I I don't know what it is like a bar or something that looks very yeah, very rural and the people there are wearing about tank tops and you know mm-hmm. what people would wear who were younger and and um you know it's 7000 degrees in Australia and yet he's standing there looking very out of place in his suit. But I think to your point, that was done on purpose because you've got these two people who are trying to fit into this world, which of course I had no idea about back then. I'm like, oh, look, Australia, cool. Let me look at that. <laughs> but yeah, they, they're trying to make their way in this world that is not, even though it's their country, it's not really there. They've kind of been pushed to the side and marginalized now.
0: Yeah, and you know when I went to Australia, God, how long ago was that now? God, 15 years ago, something like mm-hmm. that. You know, you, I read books about it and stuff like that. It, it's, it's amazing how, like, it, in, in America, obviously, all the slaughtering and screwing over of the Native Americans is pretty well documented. You know, there's mm-hmm. lots of books. It's in history books. There's movies. There's, there's all sorts of, you know, stuff. And there's, you know, there's still plenty of Native Americans around to remind us of the nasty stuff that we did. But a lot of stuff about what happened to the Aborigines is really swept under the rug. Like they don't study mm. it as much. And you know, it's like, oh yeah, there's somebody who studied that. You know, you could talk to somebody about that. And then she's like, oh yeah, well, you know, kind of a revolt happened. It was put down, whatever. It's like, no, tens of thousands were <laughs> killed. And but because it's so remote and it took so long for news to get from one place to the other. Plus, where is the news going? Back to England? Did England care about? They're not just murdering the Aborigines there. They're, they're murdering Native people on every island in the Pacific and mm-hmm. the Caribbean and yeah. in Africa and India. That's kind of their thing. So you know, it's like, do we have to document every time we murder Indigenous <laughs> people? Can we just forget about it for once? It's, that's is all we'd I mean. ever talk about. Yeah. It's, well, that's because it's, it's all you ever do. <laughs>
2: But back to the song. Yeah, it, it starts off kind of a in a in an interesting way too. You get that like that kind of the acapella. Like you think this might be like some kind of '50s song, and then boom, it turns and kind of becomes its own animal.
0: Dance. Mm, yeah. Mm, to me it's it's very Nile. Absolutely. And of course, the album version has this long, kind of interesting part in the middle. The album version's over seven and a half minutes long. The single's just over four. So they, they cut out a ton, but it, it was the stuff they taught they cut out was very album-oriented, very album deep track kind of thing. But it went to number one. All over the world. I mean, there's mm. there's basically nowhere it, it didn't go number one or very close.
2: Well, I was going to say, I I remember I remember Modern Love, I remember China Girl, but it, but Let's Dance was in very very heavy rotation on MTV.
0: Heavy duty rotation. Yeah, yeah no no doubt about it, man. I mean. All the time on there. And let me see here. Let me get back to the charts here. Because this is just fascinating to see where all it went, number one. Okay. I mean, basically all around the world. Two in Australia, two Austria, one Belgium, one Canada, one all of Europe, one Finland, two France, two Germany, one Ireland, one Netherlands, one New Zealand, one Norway, one Spain, two in South Africa, one in Sweden, Switzerland, UK, US Hot 100, US Hot Disco, Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, all over the world, over a million sold in the United States, over a million sold in England, (laughs) Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands. I mean, millions. I mean, the the song just about outsold the album itself. (laughs) So, I mean, that's that's huge for him and success that he probably wasn't counting on. But and, and of course, it has those saxophones all over it. The congas or the drums, you know, are, are good on it. It, it. It's a classic. And, of course, he played it on that tour. He played it on the Glass Spider tour. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see the Glass Spider tour, concert tour? I, I feel like they, it was something they showed on HBO back in, like, the you know, late 90s, yeah. or late 80s, rather.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, it, it, was, it was kind of, it was funky. He had the big spidery-looking thing in the back. And I can't remember. I think Charlie Sexton was on that too, and I thought he was pretty cool at that point in time. So yeah, that was a that was a kind of a departure. But I, 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 you're right. I think they did make a big deal of that when it came out.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like you said, the tour kind of had that big spider. It it was it was like the set became a big deal because around that time, the Stones were doing. Their big Steel Wheels and Urban Jungle tour. Pink Floyd had done their huge, Delicate Sound of Thunder tour. And this is when we're starting to push the envelope of how big and cool sets can be. So obviously Bowie has to do something as well. And it was pretty influential to a lot of artists who saw that It's like, okay, wow, well now I'm going to make my set, my stage, look really awesome also. So I remember that was kind of the first time I ever really saw him, other than the modern love, just the video, not the long form, serious moonlight. I never really saw that whole thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But with like seeing a whole Bowie concert, and I think it was live from Australia, like, wow, you know, that's that's really cool. I didn't know concerts were like that. I figured just people just go on stage and they sing their songs, but this like really, <laughs> really neat set and all that it really pushes it. So he sang that on both those tours, obviously. But again it was success that he probably almost almost didn't want.
2: Yeah, I think what happens when that when that blows up like that? Like he like you said, you want you I want to make a different record. I want this to sound good, but you know, it'll probably be kind of the what I've done so far, kind of sell about the same, and then no, it just goes off and you become this worldwide phenomenon who not well not phenomenon, but you kind of reinvented yourself again.
0: Right you're you're a superstar now
2: yeah 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 you've now you've now you were talking about mick jagger like with this with this record he kind of moved himself into like the stones air
0: yeah 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 absolutely he did you know but it probably made him a little nervous too i mean it's like hey it's great to have money but the thing is he was on a new record contract emi america and Mm -hmm. allegedly allegedly it was like a 17 million dollar contract so it's like you right. sign that. EMI wants to get its money back, right? Mm-hmm. You, you gotta have some hits here, and hey, you did great with Let's Dance, you know. Uh, but it's that two sides of the coin. You want success, you want artistry, you want respect. Uh, yes. Or do you want? I want all of
2: that. Wide appeal. Well, it's hard to get it all. Usually, you kind of have to have one or the other. And and th- and the other thing that that's really too bad, also, and this happens over and over and over again, is you know you sell this record, or this record comes out, you sell. 10 million copies. Well, obviously your next record is going to sell 12 or 15. You know, no. it doesn't work like that. You no. know, that's not going to happen.
0: No. And they rushed, you know, the next year's album. Tonight.
2: Yeah, it was called tonight.
0: 1984. In, is tonight. in, 18, in
2: 84. Okay. Yeah,
0: which was kind of rushed out. And, and in the middle, he put out some more greatest hits. I think the Ziggy Stardust thing came out. a soundtrack came out finally. I mean, he, he was a hot property. Like, okay, well, let's put out as much as we can, you know. But anyway, let's move on, shall we? All right. Can we do that? Sure. Because the next song, Without You, was the last single off the album. And has Bernard's Edward Bass on it. And he apparently recorded everything on there in 13 minutes. <laughs> and, and and Niall said he was so proud of him. He's like, I'm the proudest I've ever been Because he just came in, did his thing. It was awesome. And he split. Tony Thompson's on it, too. And it's kind of a it's kind of new wave meets R&B, but it's short. There's Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot to it. So it's kind of like, I won't say that those two were wasted in that that's the only time they both appear together on it because I do like it, but I just, I don't see myself listening to this song outside of the context of the record.
2: Yeah, and it's... (sighs) the groove is nice the the vocal delivery is a little strange because he's Mm -hmm. singing with that kind of falsetto yeah and the problem too is that you we were talking about front loading this you've got three giant hits and then it's kind of like i understand this was a this was a single but it's almost kind of a letdown now like what else do you have i just gave you three giant hits Mm -hmm. come on now i know
0: I know you're right about that. I like it, but again, it's 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 so short and there's not much to it. I wonder if it was one of the last ones done. It was backed with Criminal World, whereas Let's Dance was backed with Cat People putting out fire. We'll get to that. It was the first single off the album Let's Dance. Without You is the last one released in eighty in November of eighty three. And It's probably like, hey, you know, we've had all the success with the album. Let's see if we can kind of push it a little further. Let's, hey, we've had three top singles let's see if we can get a fourth i don't think without you really went anywhere certainly not in the u.s
2: i don't ever remember hearing it i mean i remember hearing those other three songs very distinctly a lot yeah yeah no not at all
0: not not at all you know so it's not a bad song but again it's it's just kind of brief and considering the heavy hitters that are on it it's kind of like well is that it kind of thing well and that Mm -hmm. is it for side one, which is the way we would have listened to it right. uh, back in the day on cassette for me. Even back then, I thought albums were big and too easy to scratch. Plus, you could take a cassette, you could put it in the car, you could put it in your Walkman, you could put it on the stereo. Love cassettes.
2: Yeah, and that was that was my problem too with records is that you're right. The cassette, it, it was much more portable and you didn't have to like... I didn't have my own record player. Like Mm -hmm. there was one, you know, we had a stereo in the house, but it's like, are you going to listen to what? Like, nah, I just kind of want to do my own thing. And Right. Yeah, you don't really know. You need to know what I'm listening to right now.
0: Exactly. And so I, you know, because I moved back to America, to the Midwest, I was forced to buy a car. Uh, Uh Haven't haven't had a car for four years. Loved not having a car. (laughs) But suddenly I don't have a choice. You know, I have to have a car. And with it, you know, when you... Cars are so fancy these days. And when you get a new car, you often get something like you'll get serious radio for three months for free and attempt to then get you to subscribe to always have it. So I'm like, all right, you know, and I, I think his channel 25 was like classic rewind, 70s and 80s. It even says there, the cassette era. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this is where I grew up in the cassette era. Another side note Pantheon Podcast, of which we are a proud member, is. Sponsoring the Rock and Pod Expo in Nashville mm-hmm. this weekend, March seventeenth and nineteenth. I'm going to try to slide down there for a day. So if anyone's going to be down in Nashville that Saturday, the eighteenth, hopefully I'll see you. But one of the v one of the DJs on that channel, Sirius Twenty Five, is Mark Goodman, one of the original MTV I was DJs. Say,
2: speaking of MTV, yeah, yeah.
0: And I, there was a great uh, interview with Mark Goodman and David Bowie that you can find on YouTube when Goodman's interviewing me or whatever. And then Bowie kind of grills him on like, you know, why doesn't MTV play more R&B? Why don't they play more black music? You know, it's all, it's very white faces all over MTV. And I think Goodman was doing just the company party lines. Like, well, we're afraid, you know, like in the Midwest and the flyover states, people don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Bowie's kind of like, yeah, that's nonsense. You got to play it anyway, kind of stuff. So you, you can <laughs> look that up. But Goodman is apparently going to be at... Rock and Pod Expo, talking about MTV being, you know, more than 40 years old and what it was like to be there. And I think uh, Ricky Rackman and Matt Pinfield will be there as well, some older VJs from back in the day. But I'd, of course, love to corner Mark Goodman because he was there at the Budokan
2: mm-hmm. for Asia and Asia in mm-hmm. December
0: 1983, man. So we'd love I, I to. Gotta, get him talk I, I got to that.
2: imagine that, that being, I mean, because there's only what, four of them at the time, the original five. MTV? There's five. five. Yeah it gave you the opportunity to do all kinds of different things. Like, you know, you were talking about like Ricky Rackman, like he, he pretty much just did metal stuff. Right. And Pinfield did the kind of all, the grunge, alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Back then it's like, you know, I'm talking to David Bowie and in five minutes, I got to go talk to Ozzy Osbourne because I'm the only person here and I've got to do this. No, Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter, my man, JJ Jackson, mm. your cousin,
0: correct. Uh, Nina Blackwood and everybody's favorite. The young ingenue, who's still very, very cute, right? Martha Quinn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I heard. I heard that like she was a student, like in college. I can't remember which school, but like in New York, doing communications. And someone's like, you know, they're they're doing this thing, uh, music television. You ought to go down there and interview. Like she was literally twenty-one or twenty-two years old. And she went down there and nailed it. Uh, and like, okay, yeah, you want to be on MTV? Sure, because like JJ Jackson, you can tell had been a DJ for a long time. He had that killer DJ voice.
2: I think I think he he was like a he was a uh, music industry uh, columnist too for like the LA Times or something. Like he he have been in the in the business for a while.
0: Yeah, like the rest of them were fairly young, uh-huh. and I feel like he was like they, they were in their twenties, but I feel like he was in his thirties. And super cool. Awesome, yeah. dude. Great voice. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's just a little little sidebar there. I am very hopeful I get to meet Mark Goodman. Who knows?
1: Hi, this is Jim Cregan, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. And they're just the best.
0: All right, let's get into side two of this, because this is... Okay, all four singles were the four singles off the first side, right? So now we get to side two. There's four songs, most all of which were B-sides at one point or another. And we start off with Ricochet. Now, this is kind of a cool song to me. It's a little bit off beat. The beat's Mm -hmm. just a little bit off, but... Yeah. You can you tell that people who liked Bowie's experimentation in the 70s, you could tell that this is one they might have gravitated to on the second side.
2: Yeah, I think this one this one is definitely the uh, the outlier for the rest of the record. But I think you're right. It is kind of a wink to, hey, I'm still David Bowie. Come on mm-hmm. now. I'm not going totally pop. Yeah, the the beat and the lyrics are off. It makes it kind of hard to listen to at the beginning. But once you get through it a couple of times, it does work yeah. in the, in the context of the song.
3: Like weeds on a rough face Waiting for the sign Ricochet
1: Ricochet The world is on the corner Waiting for jobs Ricochet
0: yeah, it's a little proggy if you want to use that term, but it, it uh-huh. does have an odd beat. There's some experimental talking throughout, and and then there's backing singing, backup singing throughout. You can hear horns throughout. I, I think it fits the times. I, I think if you're going to experiment in the early '80s, I think this actually makes sense. It, it, it mm-hmm. fits with the times, but you can't tap your foot to it really. No, right,
2: right. This this is a nice kind of backside of the record track where, I mean, let's face it, probably most people that bought this, did you even get to the backside? Probably not. Like you just rewound it and went back to track one.
0: Right. You know, and this is the only song on the record that did not feature as an A or a B side single. This is the mm-hmm. one, you know, and, yeah. and, and probably cause it's, it's a little weird. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, in the middle, it's not the end of the world. When the music stops in the middle, they, you hear, it's not the end of the world. Ricochet. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a little odd. You know, I, And it, I didn't really listen to this as a 10-year-old. I probably would have no. thought, God, this is weird. Yeah. That yeah. I can appreciate it now. It's, it's kind of cool. I give him credit for doing it. But, yeah, again, are you going to sing along to it? You're not going to dance to it.
2: Right, and, and you, what, not one you want to listen to in the car. But I'm glad that he did it just so it wasn't totally commercial.
0: Yeah, not just pop R&B yeah. kind of thing. You know, No, it's it's cool. So, yeah, credit to him, props to him. Wouldn't be my favorite. Doubt it's – but the thing is I say I doubt it's anyone's favorite. I, I bet for some people who really like the experimental stuff that he did in mm-hmm. the 70s and the Berlin years and stuff like that, I bet they do actually like that one. Right, that's what
2: they're going to tell you. Well, you need to turn the record over and listen to you know, right. Ricochet. That's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, stop listening to those pop things, and that MTV <laughs> garbage, you know, stuff that went to number one all over the world. Don't listen to that. Listen to the one that's weird and nobody likes. Okay, I'll do my best. But the next song is Criminal World. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there's a lot of bisexual or pro-trans undertones to this. This is a cover It was done by a band called Metro in 1977, and Mm -hmm. it was banned in the UK because of those bisexual undertones, overtones.
2: Yeah, a little too hot for 1977. Yeah, Right,
0: right, yeah, yeah. Don't listen to that. Listen to the punks thrashing each other, right? Don't don't (laughs) listen to the people, you know, loving each other in a different way. (laughs) Very strange. But this is a darn good song, man. Mm -hmm. And the, the cool bass... To start it off as kind of its signature, but then it's off and running, and the bass
2: is great kind of throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a it's one of those songs that you could probably listen to a couple of times. Like, yeah, I like that. Wait, what was you saying? face girl. Wait, yeah. what's going on here? Oh boy, what's happening? And you know, and again, like we were talking about before, in the Heartland, you mm-hmm. know, if they really listened to that, there may have been some problems in 1983.
0: It, yeah, well, it, exactly. Or now, you know, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Um, Look. <laughs> well, Stevie Ray Vaughan is is definitely on this one. It sounds Mm -hmm. like he's playing more... At first, I thought that maybe it was Niall playing, because it's more his style, at least at first. And maybe it is him, and then Stevie comes in later. Bowie thinks it's Stevie Ray's best work on the album. I think it's a good mellow tune with a killer groove, just a great groove, and I like it. And you're right, the first couple times I listened to it, I couldn't really make out the lyrics. Uh So so I'm like, look, this is just a great song. you know, Mm -hmm. Great groove, great music, or whatever. Then when I start to listen to lyrics, I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess I can see why this wouldn't have been a single or why it wouldn't have hit in the heartland of the USA. I I get that now. Correct. see, that's that's kind of subversive in that, like, we're going to make you a great song because you usually can't hear the lyrics the first time, except for maybe the chorus. You right. know, there's a big shout along you're like you're just getting into the song. Like the music is what grips you and pulls you in. It's like, OK, this is good. And then you take a closer listen. If you are part of the LGBTQ community, that was probably a great surprise. And maybe you already knew it from the Metro version. Maybe not. You're like, oh, that's cool. You know, but then for, for, for what would you call me a breeder? Or a normie. I don't know what I am. <laughs> I know I'm boring. And, and, and on that spectrum of things, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I see it. It, it, it. it doesn't bother me now. I don't know that it would have bothered me back then. But it's, it's probably
2: one you wouldn't sing along to a whole lot with your buddies.
0: <laughs> at that, you know.
2: You would definitely get some strange looks if you were, if you were singing along in the uh, car with the windows down. With, with the
0: buddies. Yeah, I know. Yeah. With your friends. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> Which is too bad because but- it's an awesome song. Right, and I I think he might be right. This is, I mean, I think Bond's guitar work on this is just phenomenal, start to finish. But this is a really great solo, and it kind of adds to it too because it's he's got like kind of the soft delivery of the vocals, and then Mm -hmm. boom, they hit you with that solo.
0: Yeah, yeah, And, and and definitely Stevie Ray does some good work on that. But to me, he's even better on the next song, the Cat People putting out fire song. Now this was also kind of a remake that he had done the year before. I guess there's a horror picture, Cat People,
3: mm-hmm.
0: that came out in 82, starring a young Nastasia Kinski. Correct. Annette O'Toole, a couple other people who you would know. And it was a remake of like a 1942 or 40s film, Cat People. I never saw either one of those.
2: So I nice. saw this one. Yeah, you did? Uh, I did. I think it was one of those, like, it's Halloween time and, you know, let's watch a horror movie or whatever. Very strange. However, okay. like you mentioned, Natasha Kinsky is in it, so that's a plus. Yes. Um, and I remember at the end, they had the David Bowie song. I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. This is, I think, a better version of it with Niles hands on it. But uh, unfortunately, the theme of this is something I try not to do, but I end up doing it all the time. You know when he's talking about putting out fire with gasoline. gasoline huh? yeah. You did it again, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, someday you'll learn, but probably not. I, I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> exactly. <just laughs> exactly. Just bite my tongue and say, you know what? <laughs> just
0: let her think she's right. Let her think what she's <laughs> saying makes sense. <laughs> you know, and and that's fine. Uh,
2: uh-huh. But but
0: you're right, no, because I listened to the. So was it like a end credits kind of song?
2: Yeah. Right? Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I was, and I remember watching the end credits this was and i only ever saw it once a million years ago thinking well that was a really weird movie but hey cool david bowie at the end right
0: yeah yeah no doubt so i i did not see the movie but i did listen to the original version and yeah it's a little more spirit doesn't have as much to it bowie's vocal style is a little bit more up front uh, maybe mm-hmm. a little harder if you want to call it that way and Stevie Ray, I think, is awesome. He, he makes the song, I think it, it's probably his best playing on the record for Stevie Ray Vaughan, to be honest with you. But yeah, Putting Out Fire with Gasoline, mm-hmm. that's something we can all relate to. And it was Correct. the B-side of Let's Dance, which means a lot of people heard it because mm-hmm. so many people bought that single. Hey, uh, the, the film may not have been a blockbuster. I think it did end up making money. Horror films, you can make them dirt cheap, and then there's this certain number of people who will always see them, right? There's this, right. this horror film fans who kind of yeah. go out and see everything. And because it's based on, I guess, a quote-unquote classic horror film, then that brings
2: in a certain crowd as well. This was a nice track, too. Kind of a kind of more of a, uh, a rocking tune after mm-hmm. the last couple. So it's, it's nice that you kind of put it, you get a couple there, that are a little, I wouldn't say slower, but a little. This is more direct, straight ahead. Uh, the lyrics on this one, unlike the last one, you know, it, you're just kind of there to move the song along.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I, I like, I like the song. Mm-hmm. Still don't have any desire to see the movie, to be honest. Okay. With you. Uh, well, you know, your your, not for everyone. your evaluation is fine. You know, I, yeah, I, I trust what you have to say <laughs> on that. You know, and then you wrap up the album with "Shake It." Mm-hmm. This is kind of funky now, this, right? This feels much more like Nile than David. I feel like Nile probably ought to get a co-write on this.
2: Yeah, I, w- I was thinking about that too. Just the whole the whole album itself, because he was talking about. I think they were talking about "Let's Dance" at the beginning of it, and and how Bowie had one idea. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Niall said, well, you know, how would if we do this? Let me, let me make something up. So how he doesn't get writing credits on this is a little head scratching to me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, on this one, this, this is a, it's a funky way to end the record. It's, I think it's really short, isn't it? It's, it's not, it's not real heavy. It's kind of a real light It's three minutes and 49 seconds. Nothing, yeah. nothing too heavy duty it, it, on this one. His lyrics are just kind of to make it not a instrumental Right, you know, and
0: then there's the, the chorus. Shake it, shake it, what's my yeah. life? I mean uh-huh. Shake
3: it, shake it, what's my life? Yeah. Sitting on a flagstone, walking to a faceless girl. the
0: talking you know it's got a little RB thing to it there so that makes it kind of fun yeah it's the second shortest song on the album it, it, it to me it's kind of like if you just kind of needed one more right it's cool that it's different it's different for Bowie but uh you know it's I don't I don't love this it, honestly at this point I'm like you know what I think I've done it. it was the b-side the China girl so again a lot of people may have heard it if they bought the China Girl single uh, but the album's kind of odd. And to me, especially as someone who came to this when they are about 10 years old, it's the tale of two sides. The first side, I would listen to all the time. The right. second side, I would probably never have listened to. <laughs> Honestly, never have. And if we'd had the LP, wouldn't even have to flip it, right. to it be would honest be, with you.
2: <laughs> it would be very clean on the second side. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now,
0: as an adult, I can come back and appreciate some of this mm-hmm a little bit more you know i appreciate the cat people i appreciate stevie ray vaughn's work on that i really like criminal world i don't know who peter godwin duncan brown and sean lyons i didn't i'd never heard of metro before i did no songs for this album they wrote that song and and bowie made his own version of it you know i can appreciate that ricochet is trying to do something different it's trying to be a little bit experimental to me shake it just doesn't fit on the album it's not a bad song it's it's Different for Bowie, it's kind of in Nile Rodgers' realm. I feel like right. more than Bowie's realm, but it wouldn't have fit on the first side. Maybe you could switch it out for "Without You" because it is upbeat, and, and that could go along after "Let's Dance." But I don't know. I, I think it's
2: it, it's kind of an odd it's kind of an odd one on this record, to be honest. And with you. and I wonder too. It you know, so the so the total length is thirty nine minutes and forty one seconds, which that's short for an album. I mean, if you get usually it's, you know, it, you wanted 45 minutes around for people to think they're get their, getting their money's worth. Mm-hmm. Is this a thing where it's, it's only 36 minutes and they say, we can't do this. This is like an EP. You've got it. Well, okay, let's put, let's throw something else on there at the end. You know, give me something funky to, to walk us out with, to bring it to the 40 minute mark.
3: Yeah.
0: And it's obviously a B side. It was literally yeah. used as a B side on a big hit. So, You know, I don't know. So kind of a mixed bag there on the second side to Bowie enthusiasts. Maybe that's what you want to hear instead of the big pop hits on the first side. It's just, you know, it imprinted on me the pop stuff as Uh a kid and it's in my brain. And I like those songs and they're very catchy. So to me, that's what it's always going to be is that first side of the record. But to the to the real Bowie fans, maybe they like that second side a lot better.
2: I, it would be interesting to talk to somebody who was a diehard Bowie fan, who's maybe a little bit older than we are, that that came into that from listening to the 70s stuff to get their take on it. The other thing, too, is you were mentioning how Bernard and Tony Thompson were not in the best shape mm-hmm. at this point in time. And so Niall was a little bit hesitant to use them. Had they been in better shape, this would have probably just been a chic record. Maybe. Because yeah. he, he would have used, used everybody and it would have been like, she fe- featuring David Bowie.
0: Yeah, you're probably right on some level there. Yeah, it would be like you know when George Harrison needed to do a tour of Japan, he just took Eric Clapton and his whole band, like, <laughs> right. like, like, like the same band that I saw Eric Clapton play, you know, in the third row in Cincinnati on the Journeyman tour. He's like, okay, yeah, I want to do a tour. Yeah, you people, all of you, yeah. Let's <laughs> we'll take you to Japan, kind of thing. But you you can't deny the success of this. I mean, over 10 million worldwide, double platinum in the USA. Platinum in the UK, five times platinum in Canada, and number one and top five all around the world. I mean... Number four on U.S. Billboard, number one in the U.K., one in New Zealand, one in France, one on the Dutch chart, one in Canada, one in Australia. Big, big, big hits for him. And he was nominated for a Grammy, I think. Okay. Uh, You know, for like, you know, album of the year. It just, you know, it happened to be up against Thriller. Uh, So. So that, that didn't work out for him, but, but still, you know, I mean, you sell 10 million records, you get nominated for a Grammy, you sell millions and millions of singles, you win an MTV award, but see, then he's not this avant-garde guy in a theater. Now he's this huge star in mm-hmm. arenas, maybe even stadiums. And he's like, the people who are buying this album are the same people buying Phil Collins albums. You know, they're not right. really listening to what I'm saying so much as they just want a hit to tap their feet to. And then that started, although he did a very successful tour for the album, *Serious Moonlight, and the Glass Spider tour was also very successful, the albums he did in the 80s after this were what they call a low creativity period for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not popular among his hardcore fans and... Did not sell very
2: well. Yeah, I don't really, I mean, let's, what were the singles off the next one? I think Blue Jean or something was that, it was off of that one. He failed to recapture the the magic, I guess. But I don't know. I think at that point in time, he was kind of lost also. Like he didn't, I think he wanted something that he maybe didn't really want. And then when it blew up on him, I'm sure everything was great. The money was great. But, you know, like you were saying, I don't know who these people are that are coming to the shows. The, the places are so big. It's just a sea of faces. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: yeah, no, and I was loving the alien, yeah, I don't even know that song, you know, Blue, uh-huh. Blue Jean was on that Changes Bowie disc that I had. That was the last one, but you know it didn't it didn't sell super well the album tonight. Uh, it just didn't. It, I mean I think it you know it, it kind of went up in the charts. At first, because, oh, hey, David Bowie's got a new album. The, the, you know, the answer to Let's Dance. And it's just a year later. And it did go platinum in the U.S., but, you know, it, it was like it wasn't Let's Dance 2, basically, right? right? And then the next one, which was uh, Never Let Me Down in 87, again, it charts well. It goes gold here. It goes platinum in Canada. But it's it's like, yeah, he's really kind of starting to fade and I think he did the Glass Spider tour, again, very successful. I thought it was cool to see it on HBO, but then he's like, God, what am I doing? I'm I'm not this huge pop star. I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, it's like, I don't, and, and I think he was saying it was Reeves Cabral's of Team Machine. He's like, David, what are you doing? And he's like, I I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, yeah, I'm out making money and I'm playing my shows, but I don't know if this is who I am. And then that's when he shifted gears and created tin machines like, okay, no, we're coming back. We're taking the David Bowie name off. I'm gonna do something a little harder. It's gonna be a little different. That Under the God song was a big hit for them. And it was kind of cool, you know. And again, you talk about Trent Reznor being influenced by him. Yeah, I, that's that's absolutely where you can see the beginning of Nine Inch Nails right there, right. In the Under the God Tin Machine thing.
2: But you were talking about too, like about that time. But you know when he did Labyrinth, and mm-hmm. and you know it was not. I my little sister loved that movie, and I just remember thinking, now what is David Bowie doing in this movie? Like it's it's a movie for kids, and he's a big rock star, and what is going on here? Very strange. But it's
0: also. But, but it was also like, but is this for kids? Because it was kind of weird and dark at right. a lot of yeah. the times. You know, I mean,
2: I think when you look at it now, like it fits in. He he was a good choice for that. But I just I just remember thinking, this is not. I mean, again, it goes back to you can't be more than one thing. Stop it. Are you a rock star or are you a movie star? I can't well, take this.
0: Well, I thought he was awesome in the picture. I mean, I, I could watch it today and say, look how good he was. And plus he <laughs> sings in it, but he's playing a weirdo and he's. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't
2: have to act, you know, right? You know what I mean, it's like he, he's got to got that part down, right? We were, uh, we're going to go through the costuming. No, no, I've got my own stuff. Don't worry about it. Oh, all right.
0: So, yeah. So that was kind of the end for, for mainstream success. That was kind of it. I mean, he continued to put to his credit. He was an artist through and through. He never stopped making records after tin machine had their run He released an album in 93, 95, 97, 99, 2002, 2003. I mean, he just kind of continued to work. Mm. Uh, It may not have been stuff that I knew a whole lot about or was following or, you know, hit the radio stations where I was listening to it. The next day, which was released in 2013, was huge for him. It went gold and to number one or two all over the world. I didn't know a whole lot about it, to be honest with you. It wasn't following him at that point. But it just shows that he could continue to reinvent himself. He could continue to do his own thing. And because of the success of this album and the two tours, he could afford to kind of do
2: whatever he wanted to do. Right, right. I think that even though... It- even though he was doing stuff that was a little bit strange. I mean, I take Tin Machine out because I think that was a totally different animal. Mm-hmm. You knew he was going to play the hits you know, wh- when he w- went on tour. So you could, eh, maybe I'll sit through some of the stuff as long as I hear Let's Dance.
0: Well, and he didn't tour a ton after that. I think he had one huge one at the end of the 90s, but it's not really one. And, and, and he built it. It's like, okay, this is it. Uh-huh. This, this is the last time I'm going to play all my old hits. So if you want to hear the changes record, you want to hear all the stuff that you love, just the radio stuff, this is it. Because either I'm not going to tour, if I do tour, I'm just going to play stuff that I want to play. I'm not kowtowing to, to huge artists, uh, mm. audiences. And and, that, and so, again, that's an integrity move. Like, I'm not just doing pop stuff because I don't need the money. And then when he did want to raise some money, he did Bowie Bonds. Do you remember that? Mm. Okay, so.
2: Okay, no.
0: Now the thing is you sell the rights to your songs to some big music publisher, right? And then they have okay. the rights. Yeah. That, that's going on all over the industry right now. In the early 2000s, and I was in investment banking at the time, he did Bowie Bonds, where basically he sold the rights to his songs in exchange for tens of millions of dollars right now. So so he was kind of a groundbreaker in that. I don't think a lot of other people followed his lead. Like like now artists are selling to BMG or to, to whomever, to Sony, to to whoever is going to curate and, and take care of these songs yeah. and, and make the money off of them. That was a chance for like, OK, this independent organization who can collateralize my IP, I'll get the money right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you can take it and bonds can go up and down or it can pay, you know, a certain percentage out in mailbox money to the holders of these bonds. I thought it was interesting. It's kind of groundbreaking. I don't know that it really took off because I didn't see too many other
2: people do it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember anybody. I, I be, th- you telling me this, I've never heard this before and I've never heard anybody doing it after after that. Even though now every, the, the deal is now everyone's selling their catalog to mm-hmm. the big music companies. Right.
0: I mean, that's, that's exactly what's happening now. So, hey, you know what? Uh, it's your music. You can do what you want with it. You want right. to keep it. You want to sell it. And some artists are going one way or some artists are going the other You know, I feel like most that are at the end of their at the end of the road here, you know, they're getting into their 70s like, you know, I can get what you can give me a hundred million dollars. Okay, yeah. Give me a hundred million dollars, you know, and and I can give that to my family without them having to fight over. No, I want the songs. No, I don't want the songs. Well, I want these songs, but I don't want those. Okay, we're not dealing with that. You know, we're just going to. We're going to get rid of it. Let them curate it. It can continue to make us some money. Like Stevie Nicks sold all but 20% of her catalog. So yeah, she got a big chunk of change. And then she can still get mailbox money from it too. Right. Uh, Yeah. Look, and she's on tour with Billy Joel. Did you see that? They're doing stadiums, Billy Joel and and Stevie Nicks together. I did see that. Yeah, that's
2: that's insane. And, And Billy Joel still does. I think he does once a month or something at Madison Square Garden and sells out every single performance. Of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's... That's interesting. I mean, I'm not dying to see that. I've seen Billy Joel. I've seen Stevie several times in Fleetwood Mac and as a solo artist. Maybe if they came to town, I would take my daughter if she wanted to go, but Mm -hmm. I'm not going out of my way for that. Never saw Bowie, and I guess at this point, never will.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it's too late. I was going to say about Billy Joel, if you're looking for real estate, apparently do not buy a house anywhere near his in the Hamptons because to get from his house... To Madison Square Garden, he takes a giant helicopter which lands on the front lawn. So, gotcha. just kind of an annoyance every once in a while. I'll just let you know. Okay. Well, I'll I'll look I'll look at okay. a different part of the island when I'm looking for cool. my Hamptons mansion.
3: <laughs>
0: that wraps episode number 120 on David Bowie's let's dance from 1983 our real introduction to Bowie as 10 year olds really bringing back some fond memories of early MTV when you're just starting to learn about music and learn about artists and learn about some artists who had been around for a long time and now they're reinvented thanks to this new thing called MTV and David Bowie was certainly one of those an avant-garde, groundbreaking artist, probably better known for his image than his music most of the time, translated very well uh, into movies, but this was a huge hit for him, and maybe it made him feel a little uncomfortable. He would later say, this was more Niall's album than mine, talking about producer Niall Rogers, trying to kind of distance himself from the big success and the big pop sensation that it was, because he wanted to kind of be a respected artist, not an all things to all people, pop star. But that's what he got out of this album. I'm sure he enjoyed the money that came along with the album and the tour. And God rest him, he did a lot to push forward rock and roll image, rock and roll music, and did a lot of good things for LGBTQ folks as well. So thank you, David, for everything you gave us. And know that thanks to our sponsor, rarevinyl.com, you can find all sorts of cool David Bowie stuff. In their catalog, they have over 250,000 items in stock. They've always got Bowie stuff; it's always in demand. So go to rarevinyl.com, use code podcast, and save 10% off orders. So we want to know, as usual, do we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. You email us at at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Let us know the bands, the records, the concerts the rock properties you want us to talk about we want to thank pantheon pods and thank them for sponsoring rock and pod expo in nashville the 17th to the 19th of march if you guys are going to be down there please stop by the pantheon booth say hi to some of my friends that are going to be there and i'm going to try to be there on saturday the 18th i might be checking out some of the other artists and the track on how to make your podcast better god knows i could use it right guys Uh, but at any rate if you're going to be there please come check us out Don't even know what we're going to be doing next week. Still in a transition trying to get back to America, folks. So we're just trying to get the shows out at the last second here. So to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, until next time, be cool and stay safe.